0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Hello, welcome to Better Make It Quick. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. Uh, This is the Wednesday edition of Better Than Yesterday, which is a podcast that is here to make your day today better than it would be otherwise. Better than yesterday, even. How do we do this? By having conversations from people from all walks of life, from all over the world, Uh, some of them absolutely experts in their field. And no matter what, In every conversation, there will be something that makes you go, "Ah, I might give that a shot and kapow, today, better than yesterday. That's what I'm here to do. Growth mindset, if you will. I think that's the word for it. Anyway, it's a nice way to live. I guess I've been living this way for a little while, and I wanted to make a show about it. So here we are. There's hundreds of episodes going back to 2013, and we're here Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Mondays and Wednesdays with a guest, and Fridays with you. You can get ad-free episodes and video episodes at patreon.com slash osher. And if you want to find me, send us your email at gmail.com. So it's Wednesday, which means we're going to take a look back at an episode from previous days, one that is um, – I don't think going to be an irrelevant episode forever. One that I think will be remain a relevant episode for a very long time. Sonia Pemberton is an extraordinary documentary maker because like vaccines, whether we like it or not, since their inception, vaccines have been a heated topic. And the recent pandemic, or the current pandemic, has taken the conversation about inoculation to the next level. Sonia Pemberton has been exploring the topic of vaccine hesitancy for years. She's an Emmy-winning documentary maker. She's a leader in Australia and around the world in science journalism. And I was quite curious, this is pre-COVID, I was curious to find out what it was like exploring such a hot-button
3: topic. I made two films about vaccines, one which is a global international film called Jabbed, uh, Love, Fear and Vaccines, and that's on SBS, and you can still watch it on SBS Catch Up. And um, then the next one, Vaccines Calling the Shots for the Americans, when we toured America with the film, the threat level was considered quite high, and I was in need of um, advice on protection, uh, physical protection possibilities of you know did I need a bulletproof vest etc and that was really shocking for me because here in this country you might get nasty emails and nasty letters in your letterbox which of course I got lots of and I got some really nasty ones but I've never actually physically felt threatened and that was quite a shock to see how in America you know as they said to me you know, we were having a press conference there's 200 people in the room some of them might have guns That was really shocking. Now, of course, it didn't come to anything. It came to some shouting and some angry stuff and lots and lots of conversations that were really challenging. But fundamentally, the conversation became quite good and quite civilised. And I guess that's one of the big things for me is um, what I couldn't get over was if... You're open to having that conversation about your understanding of vaccines and other people's understanding of vaccines Um, and you're really having a conversation. Really big things happen. And I started off, you know, seven, eight years ago. I mean, I'm science educated. I'm from from a scientific family. My father's a doctor. My grandfather's a doctor. I originally went to study medicine. Um, You know, I come with a scientific bias. I'm quite clear on that. Um, And I brought that to making the films on vaccines, but over the two and a half, three years of research I did and all of the people I spoke to and so many families um, who were fearful, so many mothers in particular who were fearful around vaccines and didn't know what to do and quite a few people who were really against them, um, Somewhere along the line, I can actually remember the day, I sitting at this very desk actually, um, when I was talking to a father in America who believed his daughter had been killed by the HPV, the human papillomavirus vaccine. And basically at 14, she had her first vaccine and he said she became withdrawn and a bit aggressive and, and slamming doors and things. And then she had the second vaccine um, six months later and she became more isolated. And then the third and final in the series of vaccines, she was so withdrawn, she went to her bedroom and one day she killed herself. And um, he on the phone spoke to me about how angry he was about this vaccine and, and how destroyed their families' lives. And it was heartbreaking because, of course, when I asked, you know, could I speak to the doctors and the medical professionals? And, because it, in order to make a film, I have to verify anybody's information and research, not to say the tragedy didn't happen, but the cause of the tragedy. And, of course, there's no real correlation between a vaccine and depression and aggression in a child. And there's an awful lot of evidence to suggest that teenagers go through difficult times. And sometimes teenagers are driven to points where they feel like they can't have any other option than commit suicide. But I can remember putting the phone down and crying, crying, just weeping, going, I can't do this. Who am I to say to any parent who is terrified of a vaccine that look, it's fine, just toughen up and take them, you know. No way. What, what I really learned was the fear is real. The fear of vaccines for many people is real. But what people often forget is the vast majority of people vaccinate, vast majority. You know, 98% of people vaccinate in this country. That's huge. 1.2% are refusers. It's tiny. It's tiny, tiny, tiny. And let's get a grip on where the problem is. The problem's not really with the refusers. You know, the problem is the fear. And how do we help people explore the issues well and thoughtfully and without people shouting at them and anyway i did an awful lot of work to make a film particularly the jabbed film that just helps talk to people who are from that position of okay we have three stories here of vaccine injuries real vaccine injuries genuine this is something where the vaccine was involved in something going wrong and we have three stories of vaccines absolutely being lifesavers and and how critical they are and over the course of the film you explore all of the range of those stories and what you quickly realize is um, that those vaccine injuries, and I'm doing inverted commas here, were correlation not causation you can't prove the causation you can't um what you can find is genetic underpinnings that mean that person you know triggered a particular reaction in that person because of this particular gene what you do find is in this particular case there was a fault with this particular vaccine um and so the film takes you through those things but the end game for me has been um it's the best option we've got right now Oh, sure. it's about give me a better way to prevent hundreds of millions of deaths every year, and sure. Yeah. You know, the faster you get these little nanopatches, which are just sticking plasters on your arm instead of needles, the more relaxed people will get.
2: Talking about vaccines, talking about climate change, these things are so absolutely charged. And even though there are incredibly educated professionals who dedicate their lives to researching and presenting peer-reviewed facts, so many people refuse to accept those facts as reality. So why do we as humans cling to our beliefs over evidence?
3: That's a really big question. Yeah, it
2: is. Um, but you've spoken yeah. to more people. You've spoken to more yeah. people with massive belief in the face of evidence than I ever will.
3: Okay, let me tackle that sideways. Um, I come from a family where my father is a medical professional, and my mother was a sanyasin, a follower of Osho very spiritual, very faith-based and liked going to uh, a lot of spiritual retreats and I grew up in a world where both sides, I was exposed to both sides every day of my life and my parents managed to stay married (laughs) most of the time quite happily and what what that did is is, um, helped me really see that It's okay to question the world from different points of view. I'm really interested at the point at which what we know meets what we believe. The actual, if you can imagine a line there. And so I'm forever going, looking at that, where my father believes and what my mother believes meets. And I'm forever peering over each of their fences going, "Mm, how do you work that problem out? Then, How do you work that problem out? And I think that's brought me to a place where I'm, respectful I hope of everybody's points of view even my dad says you know all paths lead to water. um you know and this idea that you can have a set of beliefs and they can inform your life and that's your set of beliefs I respect that when you claim those beliefs are factual and when those beliefs have impacts on other people that could be catastrophic that's when I think You hit a problem and so you have to be able to look at this and go, okay, my belief system isn't fitting with the vast majority of, and I put facts in inverted commas because we know that things can change. But we do have to look at the large body of evidence. So, for example, climate change, we know 98% of the world's you know, climate scientists all agree that basically global warming is happening and it's human-induced. There are roughly around well, about 2% or less of people that um, think that's not true. I think we have to look at what the 98% tell us. I think this is important. We can look at the 2% and still go, mm, come on, you're fringe and really you are fringe. Likewise with vaccines, 98% of the science tells us that these things are beneficial and save lives, countless lives. And there's less than 2% that sort of go, hmm. So we need to sort of keep looking at what the majority of science tells us. Now, every now and again, dogma is overthrown. You know, I've made films about scientists, you know, for Winner's Guide to the Nobel Prize. It was the story of Helicobacter pylori and stomach cancer, why Barry Marshall and Robin Warren, two Australians, won the Nobel Prize. And they discovered that there were these um, bugs that live in our stomach lining and uh, they were the triggers that could lead to stomach cancer. Now, before they made that discovery, we thought we didn't have bugs in our stomachs. It was too acidic. Guess what? Today, we think there are zillions of bugs in our stomachs. So science does change. You, know, you get new evidence, you, you adapt what you know. But you need to look at it. So, so why do some people choose not to look at it? I, I think... that. In some ways it's easier, you know, um, it's easier to go with what your tribal allegiance may um, suggest. You know, my mother's tribe um, was very much, I use tribe in inverted commas here, but you know, her tribe is, is very much what you feel matters most and your intuition is very important and um, she, she had an awful lot of faith in, in, in faith of various kinds of faith, spirituality my father's tribe wants to see the evidence my father's tribe it says justify your position show me your data i think when we can look through the, at the world through both lenses and explore what both offer to a worldview we're going to gain the most insight but rejecting one or the other i think is stupid personally i think is stupid A because it closes down people uh, and, and shuts out a proportion of the world. I've met some fantastic scientists that are deeply religious. I've met and spoken to a geneticist who works every day with genes that evolve under his microscope every day and sees evolution of cancer cells every day and yet doesn't believe in evolution. You can hold contrary beliefs simultaneously. It's an interesting thing. You know, it's cognitive, the ultimate cognitive dissonance. Um, And and what does Dan Gahan call it? He calls it cognitive duality. I think we've become too binary that you have to choose one or the other. And in my personal kind of worldview, I refuse to choose. I'm very pro-science. I I think science is incredible. It gives us such insight and such knowledge, but I'm also completely open to um, other experiences and uh, and appreciating other people's spiritual beliefs. I don't have a religion that I I identify with, uh, but nor do I call myself anything in relation to religion. I'm just kind of open to it. And whether that's a good thing or not, that's how I approach all of these subjects. But I worry when the world is forcing us to choose. And social media, you're right, you know, encourages us to choose.
2: We'll hear more from Sonia about the polarization of our society and and why that's happening uh, after this moment, uh, because we do need to play some ads. If you do hear an ad, thank you. You're helping us pay the team. If not, we're back with Sonia.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
2: Sonia Pemberton has almost exclusively explored polarising topics in her work, in her films that she makes, uh, uranium, vaccines, vitamins, cancer, even carbon. What is her fascination with the polarisation of the public conversation?
3: I think polarisation has become something that's crept up on me um, in the sense of Years ago, we made a film called Crude, um, The Story of Oil, and it won lots and lots of awards. That's before I formed Gene Paul. I made that whilst I was at the ABC. And back then, you know, climate denialism was enormous and and the current government, John Howard's government at the time, was saying, you know, climate change is nonsense. Hey, haven't we come a long way? Anyway, um, I'm being ironic. So polarisation really became an issue for me, really, with the vaccines programmes, the two films we made about vaccines. Because I realised how much it was hurting us all. You know, polarisation, I think up to that point, to me, was kind of an intellectual idea. And then I just realised that I was having difficulty talking to people who were anti-vaccine. I'd get angry. My husband would kick me under the table if someone around the dinner party said, oh, I don't vaccinate my children. I would just start telling them all the reasons why they were wrong. You know, this is how I started off. And then, of course, it became a very uncomfortable dinner and that person wouldn't listen to me and it became very tense. Um, And I thought, my God, I'm just as polarised, you know. And what I had to do a lot of work on was my own bias. I had to check my own bias at the door. And, you know, one of the great things I learned was declare your bias. You know, a lot of people say you have to find shared values to avoid polarisation or to help diminish polarisation. I would argue... Another way of approaching polarization is to declare your differences right from the start and go, Hi, I'm Sonia. I come from a real scientific kind of family. I was kind of brought up thinking about science and whatever. So I've got a natural sort of propensity to, to look for the evidence. And the evidence that I look at says, you know, vaccines are, are a really good idea. Well, well, what's your kind of point of view? And they say, I don't vaccinate my kids because I'm frightened of this. And I read this and I heard that. And these days I go, Tell me why. Tell me why. And what I found is that as we start exploring why they've made their decisions, and I tell you, the range of decisions, the most extraordinary one I ever had was because I'm scared of antibiotic resistance – now, because I'm a science geek, I'll tell you that makes no sense whatsoever, but for this person, their genuine fear of vaccines was because they thought it was exacerbating antibiotic resistance. <laughs> now, I'll tell you just for any listeners who are idle, well, I'm sure your listeners are, there, there is no correlation there whatsoever. But there was the reason. For another one, there was a family, as a grandmother who had a particular medical condition and they were worried it was passed down the line. And there's all sorts of personal reasons. So once you start dealing with what people's personal reasons are, you start to realize you see the individual and you don't see the group and you stop being tribal. And I have a rule now that I take my tribal, I declare my tribal hat, you know, I'm pro-science, and then I try and put it on the table. So it's there and it's clear and it's declared. I never say I'm unbiased. I never say my films are unbiased. That would be lying. Of course I'm biased. Everyone's biased. The best you can hope for is to check your biases every day. I have a little sticker on my computer right now. It says, what if I'm wrong? (laughs) You know, it says, what if they're wrong as well? I remember 20-odd years ago, I made a film about bovine spongiform encephalopathy, otherwise known as mad cow disease. Um, And 20, 25 years ago, it was um, breaking all around the world. and, and And before people got sick, we were making a film about it. And I interviewed the then expert in Scotland. And my husband was filming. He's my cameraman on most of my films. And he remembers this clearly. And we always talk about it. We interviewed this guy from Scotland and he said, BSC, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, will never, ever transmit to humans. And within a year, 17 people were dead. And and many more would die later. So, you know, sometimes science gets it wrong.
2: What if I'm wrong is an interesting way to check your bias. Is that a way for us to start? before we find ourselves getting into polarizing?
3: Look, I think it's helpful to check your biases. And and so if you think, you know, all GM foods are bad or all GM foods are good, and by GM I mean genetically modified, whatever extreme, and I would say both those positions are extreme, I check that bias and go, okay, well, why do I think that? Where do I get my information from? Am I just saying that because my group thinks that? Or oh, because I've read deeply about it? Have I read deeply on the other side as well? Have I explored it? Um, and again, I would argue there's a spectrum in there.
2: Sonia Pemberton is a magnificent human being. You can find out all about the documentaries that Sonia has made. Just visit the Gene Pool Productions website. Uh, you can watch them there. There's so much more in this conversation. We couldn't fit in if you like. like to hear the whole thing, you can just scroll back through the podcast feed and find it there. Thank you so much for being a part of it. We're back here on Friday. If you are in Sydney, I'll tell you now, we have a special live show happening on Sunday with Allegra Spender. We're going to be at Bondi Hardware, I think around two in the afternoon. It is a ticketed event, uh, but either go to Bondi Hardware or... Um, find Allegra's website uh, or follow me on socials and you can find how to get there. Thank you so much to Andy Marr, who has uh, unpacked uh, crates and crates of audio gear in his new house to, to build this episode today. Bree Steele on production for creating this episode. Rachel Barrett, the almighty executive producer of the show. And of course, uh, Toe Hider on the music. Thanks for listening. Uh, hope you're well. I'll talk to you on Friday. Until then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. <music>